Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. I am so happy to welcome the fabulous Susan Fells Hill as our guest today. Susan is a television producer, author, and screenwriter. She was the lead writer and producer for the beloved sitcom A Different World, and she's now the executive producer on the series 20s created by Lena Waithe. There was a lot of TV in between there, but I just fast-forwarded to the present. <laughs> Susan is the author of several books, including two novels and a memoir, Always Wear Joy, My Mother Bold and Beautiful, which details growing up as a daughter of Josephine Premise, a, a Haitian-American musical legend who was a dancer, singer, and actress. Susan is also a fierce advocate for the arts and education, and she and her husband, Aaron Hill, have a daughter, Josephine Bristol, who is 17. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Susan! Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here, and I have to say, I love the sort of logline uh, of your show, for people raising black and brown children. And that's such an important point to make because they're people of all colors raising black and brown children. Uh, and I, I find that title very inviting and very reflective of the world as it is evolving. Oh, well, I appreciate that because I often think that people who of different hues who are raising black and brown children need to have these conversations as much as, if not more so. I think, amen, <laughs> amen to that. And they're hungry for it. And I heard a distressing story, actually, um, when uh, all of the uprisings were taking place about a friend of a friend of mine who happened to be the white mother of a black child and the son, <laughs> and she was being shut out of mother's groups because they ah. were saying, your pain is not our pain. And I thought, well, you know, if you're a mother and you lose your child, mm -hmm. what difference does it make what color you are? Uh, and so I, I'm glad that you, you invite everyone into this space. Oh, well, thanks, Susan. I, I, I appreciate that. So, Susan, I have known you for many years. I actually didn't even bother to count, but I do know it has to be more than 17 because I know I've known you since well before Bristol was yeah, born. Well, before Bristol, we're, we're, we're approaching i'd say 24 25 years wow that can't be <laughs> <laughs> but but you know as as many different talks as we've had about a lot of different things we actually haven't had so many talks about parenting so i'm really excited to talk with you about your parenting perspectives and how you came to them so i i want to get started with your story Little Susan Fails, <laughs> native New Yorker. Well, actually, born... no, not, not native. Uh, an important point is I was born in Italy uh, oh. because my parents were literally refugees from racism. Uh, they got married in 1958, the same year as the Lovings, and my mother was black and my father was white, and it was a big scandal, and my father was fired from his job, and they were getting hate mail, their families were getting hate mail. Uh, and they were fortunate to have friends who lived in Europe and who could uh, offer them opportunity. And so they they fled to Rome. So oh, wow. uh, it's just it's a little important factoid uh, because it is a reflection of a time and and how far in a way we have come, at least as a nation. Oh, that is an, a, an incredibly important fact. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, so, it's so funny how we can say, and we do, when we tell stories and talk about our history, we can say in a sentence something that is so incredibly 
traumatic that they had hate mail, they lost their jobs, they had to leave the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it just incredible. Yeah, within our lifetime, you know, it, we're not talking about 100 years ago. <laughs> so Uh-oh. people forget. Ooh. Yeah. So so you're in Italy. What part of Italy? Rome, Rome, Italy. Oh. And it was a fun time to be there because it was really the height of um, collaborations between Hollywood and Rome. You know, Cleopatra was filmed at that time, uh, very much La Dolce Vita. And uh, my mother being an actress, they knew everybody. And so how old were you when you came back to, well, not back, when you uh, came to the United States? I was uh, two years old. And I actually asked my mother once because she did so much enjoy living in Rome. I said, would, would you have raised us there? And she said, no, because you would have been oddities all your life. And mm. uh, the Italians, <laughs> they, they didn't really know. Uh, they had never really seen black people, many of them. And so they would stare at her every single day uh, when she would leave the house. They were respectful, but she was this curiosity. And then when we were born, there was all this talk among the local shopkeepers. Will they be striped? Will they be polka dotted? You know, there, oh, was, there was just a lot of um, naivete. Uh, so again, as I said, never cruelty, but just we would have felt like we were growing up at the zoo, I think. <laughs> Italy, I, I know um, one thing I've always known and admired about you is that you have a, a talent for many languages. So was Italian among your first languages? You had, uh, Indeed it was. So, uh, and I have to give my parents credit. They were both uh, very gifted with languages. My father is one of the rare Americans who has a really good ear for language. Uh, and uh, my mother growing up in a Haitian household, she grew up speaking English, French, Creole. And then as a performer and singer, she learned Portuguese. And when she moved to Italy, she, she made it her business to become fluent in Italian. And so my brother was hearing all these languages in the house uh, and he's older than I. And he basically started speaking a mishmash. He would start a sentence in one language and end it in another and he was in a little preschool and my mother asked the teacher, what do, what do we do? And she said, one language, one parent. So mm-hmm. it became English with my mother, um, counterintuitively French with my father. Uh, and then we had a nanny who actually came back from Italy with us and was with us till I was eight. Uh, and we spoke Italian with her. Um, so, uh, and it was very organic, very natural. And it's not, by the way, a sign of any kind of intelligence. It's it's so easy when you're young and your mind is plastic before you turn 11, actually. There are neuroscientific studies that the brain can absorb it. And for little ones, it's not confusing because they do really differentiate one sound from another. And when only one kind of sound comes consistently from one parent, you just know. And so I did the same thing with my daughter. I only speak French to her. Um, and, and until my father died, I never had a conversation in English with him, even though he's an American. So uh, for those people who want to raise bilingual children or trilingual children or who want to expose them to different cultures, I, I highly recommend it. It's not confusing to them. It doesn't retard their development in any way. I'm so grateful my parents passed on the gift of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they hadn't made the effort they would have spoken all these languages and my brother and I wouldn't have. Actually, you know, I, my daughter um, is, is pretty talented in French. She's not quite fluent, but she speaks it pretty well. And she swears that it, it, it has its, its origins. When I put her in a 
immersion class at two in New York City where they only spoke to her in French. Exactly. And I marveled that when I went to pick her up and they're speaking to her entirely in French and she's doing what the, the things that they're saying. Exactly. So, yeah. Those it little really works. Mind- it real- and don't yeah. listen to the people who say, oh, it confuses them and, you know, they'll speak late. Uh, my daughter started speaking at 11 months. So I don't know if she's going to start speaking at six months. <laughs> <laughs> But it it really is. uh, And it's shown there's so many benefits because it makes them good problem solvers, because, if you know, you can express something in different ways. You also know you can approach a problem in different ways. Uh, It's just a wonderful passport. So for all the parents listening who have little tiny ones, consider trying to expose them to another language now. Yeah, <laughs> it, it will make Or if you have a caregiver who speaks another language and probably their own language better than they speak English, let them do that with your child. It's going to be yeah. a huge advantage and see what happened to your daughter. It was that early seed planted that later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me about your, your parents. They both have really fascinating histories. Tell me about your mom's family and your dad's family. So my mother's family, my my grandfather, uh, Lucas Premis, uh, was a uh, political uh, exile from Haiti. Uh, and he arrived here actually in 1919, um, which is a really interesting and pivotal year in American history with the flu pandemic and the end mm-hmm. of the First World War. And, you know, Jim Crow very much entrenched in the South. So uh, into this maelstrom comes this young man. uh, And my grandmother, whom I'm not sure he knew in Haiti, came soon thereafter. And they met and married and had two daughters. So my mother grew up in kind of a a very Haitian environment. They grew up in this wonderful, uh, culturally mixed environment. And my grandfather was always helping people escape from Haiti. He became a furrier and, um, and a big union leader, um, of the furriers union. Um, so, which is also interesting when you think about it, I'm sure there weren't that many black men in the, in the furrier trade mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and uh, he was very politically active. So he knew Mary McLeod Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt. And he was invited to, into all of these leftist intellectual circles. Um, and there are these wonderful accounts in the diaries of Anais Nin, who had a big literary salon that uh, James Baldwin attended and Gore Vidal and um, Richard Wright uh, and my mother. And there are these great descriptions of my mother as this teenage little colt, 16 years old, and her shy sister, uh, and my grandfather, um, and uh, one of their friends from Haiti. Uh, So it's really fun to get these descriptions of my mother when she was, you know, my daughter's age now. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, instead of obsessing over the SAT subject test, (laughs) my mother (laughs) was was sitting talking literature with, you know, Truman Capote, who's an aspiring writer, and Gore Vidal, who's an aspiring writer, and James Baldwin, who's an aspiring writer. Uh, And it's also to think back at how much, you know, now in a very unsexy way, we call it intersectionality. At the time, especially in leftist circles, there was so much um, commonality and there was so much uh, mixing uh, mm-hmm. among people of different sexualities, different races, etc. So, mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the environment she grew up in. 
Meanwhile, on a completely other side of town, (laughs) 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 growing up like a proper wasp boy, my father uh, grew up in a townhouse on 72nd Street and um, went to Buckley. side of 72nd Street. (laughs) Yes, yes. uh, Went to Buckley and then um, to St. Paul's, which uh, asked him after a year to leave. For reasons which I'm going to go through their records and see what exactly he had a claim that I won't talk about here, but whatever. Anyway, so uh, and his father um, was the head of a bank and the commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Um, and so uh, my father grew up sailing, which was his biggest passion. Um, and uh, later in life, he actually uh, became a, a sea captain, uh, captaining cargo ships and um uh oil tankers somehow they came together (laughs) well so they had again back to this whole cross-pollination of different groups you know um there are all these wonderful nightclubs in midtown where you know high society would meet performers people like bobby short and you know uh, all of these wonderful uh talents and um, there was a man named Johnny Gallier, and he was good friends with my mother and very good friends with Lena Horne. And my mother was doing a musical in 1957 with Lena Horne. And Johnny, who knew my dad socially, brought him to see the musical. And uh, my father took one look at this chocolate woman in her sarong <laughs> and said, that's the mother of my children. So... Um, <laughs> So there it is. That's that's what happened. So these two people, fascinating sounding people, found each other, got married, uh, skidded off to Italy to to, right. to be able to live a life, and came back with you you and your brother. So you're in the United States now. You're in New York, and their union is not celebrated. How was your um, circumstance as a biracial child of these two really interesting worldly people how did you how were you introduced to that did they talk to you about that so Um, yeah so um i'd say they did a wonderful balance of straight talk and cocooning (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know there's certain information that at a certain age it's just not useful to know i don't think a three-year-old needs to know that half the world hates them or that you know they're a crime in (laughs) (laughs) Mason Dixon line. So um, the first time I remember talking to my mother about race specifically was, and I should actually point out something that set my families apart. And that was a real privilege, if you will, both families accepted us. And I, I talked to a lot of other people of my vintage who came from mixed marriages and they have horror stories of, you know, in-laws barring the door to them, never speaking to them again. And that did not happen to us. We were accepted. And that makes a big difference. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But uh, my parents, the first time I realized there was a difference in race where my mother actually openly discussed it was uh, I was five and I had been out with my father for the day and I came home and I said, mommy, papa is really good at hailing taxis and you're terrible. Because, you know, I just, when I would go out with my mother and we would try, five cabs would pass us by till one stopped. 
And um, and I went out with my dad and lo and behold, he'd barely stepped off the curb and, you know, they're screeching to a halt. And so um, she gently sat me down and she said, um, let me tell you why that is. Look at mommy. Mommy is black. And they think that she's going to a, a poor and bad neighborhood and they don't want to take her. Uh, Papa's white and they think he's going someplace nice. So that was my introduction to racial inequality and the notion of uh, the value judgments made around color. Mm -hmm. um, they talked a lot about our history, our family history. I would go to protests against Duvalier with my grandfather. Um, they, um, they just exposed us to everything. Um, and, uh, I'd say from a pretty early age, they would say to us, listen, in this country, you are considered a black person. That's what you are. And, mm -hmm. but by the way, you're not different from other black people because your father's white, all black people in this country, most of them <laughs> have some, <laughs> some white heritage, Frankly, a few of the white people do too. So you're not some oddball. You're part of a continuum. You're not different and set apart. I think that this wonderful balance of, hey, let's talk about the fact that we're not an, on a level playing field, that people are bigoted, that uh, your history has been denied. That's the other thing I should say. My father had all of these, his heroes on the walls of his study. And there were all these Haitian uh, founders of the, the, the Haitian Republican leaders of the revolution. And those were his heroes. So mm -hmm. not, you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. So that's very empowering as a child of color to walk into your father's study every day and see the figure staring down at him that he regards as his founding fathers are these black men of mm -hmm. dignity and stature and courage. Um, and, he was very, very, very knowledgeable about black literature, black history internationally, the Caribbean, and the amount of time my father invested in the pursuit of knowledge about cultures, not his own, really gave me that sense of extraordinary pride. They did such a great job of distinguishing between, okay, there's current reality, and then there's the actual truth. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and the truth being, she had every bit as much to be proud of as he did, and um, uh, and that her family was as distinguished intellectually, morally, uh, historically as his was. The world is so, going to tell you all these lies, but this is the mm -hmm. truth. This such a valuable, valuable lesson in terms of how to uh, to make sure your children grow up. Um, standing in pride because if you know your history and they knew their history and they told you mm -hmm. their history from a very early age you when we talked about this earlier you had said it's a great line both families came from families that had histories to be reckoned with mm -hmm. not that they were saying they were better than anyone else but don't let anyone push you around or suggest that you're less than anyone else and i love that phrase because it it suggests that stories our children need to hear our stories whatever they are 
Exactly. From a very early age. From a very early age. And it doesn't have to be a fancy story. I, I think it's just so important for kids to know this is what you come from, because when you are faced with those challenges in life, you can look back and say, grandma made it through the depression, through mm-hmm. World War Two, <laughs> mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. the indignities. I can do this, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so important on so many levels. First of all, knowing history, any kind of history, world history, your own history, it's so important because you, we see what happens when, when, uh, people are not grounded in history. They're sort of uh, the ability to just sort of pluck things out of the air and try to make yeah. them make sense. <laughs> it, it, it's not good. <laughs> but you mean the moment we're living right now? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Let's just make it up as we go along. Right. No, exactly. but, no and finally, finally, you know, our country's looking at its history and it's sort of like all these years of people scratching their heads going, why are black people poor? Why are they angry? Why are they? Well, I'm sorry. Let's just look at the economic history of the country. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You'd be poor too. So, <laughs> you know, Harvard Business School put out a 30 page case laying it out from all the way from the slave trade to, you know, redlining and um, uh, um, uh, the injustice mass incarceration. So it's knowing those those facts of what the laws were and what the obstacles were, it helps orient ourselves into why are we here? I mean, we are a dysfunctional family and with good reason. <laughs> and so yeah. I have to add a little complication, though, to my family history, and I'm currently writing about this, is... So I was so proud of it all until <laughs> four years ago when I discovered that my father's family, who were all, you know, New England, you know, Boston, Brahmin, they were actually slave traders uh, because um, they were from Rhode Island and Rhode Island was an epicenter of the slave trade. And that's how they first actually made their money. Um, and that, believe me, is no point of pride. But Um, so what I'm grappling with now is, okay, I had this family myth, (laughs) (laughs) which stood you well until about four years ago. (laughs) And now, now I'm driven to drink. So, um, anyway, but I, again, I think it is really important and especially for the sake of my daughter, who's named after the town that was the epicenter of the transatlantic slave trade in the United States, Bristol, Rhode Island, little Bristol, Rhode Island, uh, to really uncover this and look at it and look at it fairly and squarely and uh, understand how the country worked, how we ended up where we ended up. Um, and the the wonderful irony of my father <laughs> marrying a black woman, <laughs> which yes. is sort of poetic justice. So it, it is, but but what I firmly believe about this is as traumatic and upsetting as that discovery must have been, the fact that you, a, a black woman, have the resources, the intellect, and the ability to write about it, to discover it, to write about it. I mean, the universe works as it should. I mean, here you are, you, you have family members who historically, this is something that's been known and no one has brought it up and who would bring it up? Who but you could bring it up in a way that it can be best looked at, dissected, unpacked, it's unpacked. So I say as tough as that is of discovery that is, it, it is, it's 
amazing. And I look forward to to understanding how you how you grapple with it and and how you how you report it when we have to know it and and it also I, I mean up north we like to think of the, uh, the all the slavery issues as being the southern issues I mean we yeah. need to understand that the there was an epicenter of slave trade in New England <laughs> for many no, reasons. Thinks, oh, it must have been Charleston. It's like, actually, no, the biggest slave trading family in the country, the one that brought the most slaves here of anyone was the DeWolfs, and they were from Bristol. Uh, and they've done a fantastic job of reckoning with their history and writing about it and exploring it. Um, and I'm proud to say among most of my white relatives, there's a an appetite for addressing it and dealing with mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. So, I want to fast forward to your daughter in that um, your parents did such a good job with with giving you a real sense of your history. And so, when Bristol was born, how did you talk to her about this this race and culture? So, um, from the time she was very tiny, I would speak to her about the different parts of the world that her family came from. Mm-hmm. And I told her she represented almost every continent except Australia and Asia. <laughs> um, and uh, I would always say to her later on in life, you can choose actually that the Chinese culture is what calls to you. That's fine. But you're never allowed to deny any part of what you are because everything that you are is rich and, and beautiful and worthy and, and equal. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk to her about my parents and what they went through when she was three. We were having ice cream and I don't know how it came up, but again, it just was very organic. I talked about the fact that um, one was one color and the other was another color. And so uh, people thought that was wrong and she burst out laughing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she literally like threw her head back. Like that's literally, she was saying it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But I did a social experiment in that I did not ever go on and on about we are are black and you're black, not because I'm afraid of blackness, but just because I really, I do feel race is a, a kind of a useless concept. And I feel when you just start reducing things to black and white, you lose the texture and you lose the richness of, to me, it's much more meaningful to say you are Haitian, you are Trinidadian, you are mm-hmm. Barbadian. And to explore what does that mean? What are what are the, the famous works of literature? What's the history? What's the food? What's the music? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, mm-hmm. you have something to hang on to. Um, and you know, white, what what the hell does that mean? And, uh, I put her in Alvin Ailey, uh, and legacy is really important to me. My mother, um, was at the first performance that Alvin did of his company. She danced with him in uh, several musicals. Uh, and so when I brought her to Alvin Ailey, it was also giving her the awareness of your grandmother knew the man who founded this company. And this is mm-hmm. you know, 50 years old and you're part of this chain of people. Um, and it was a great healthy environment as you and I have discussed because she was seeing Again, children of all shades and a lot of brown children, which wasn't mm-hmm. the case at her her preschool at that point. And I just did not want to clutter her with white people think this. And it, I mean, that's not helpful information in my mind uh, when you're a, a small child. And I put her in the Lycée Francais where I went to school 
where I thought she would have a better shot of simply being a human being because there are kids from 50 different countries. Uh, the families tend to have to be very well traveled. Um, Let me just so, interrupt and say, for those who don't know, the Lycée Française is a French immersion. Well, it, it's, it's a school it's in which... It's a French school in New York. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Total immersion. Everything's taught in French. And that's where I went. And the big gift it gave me was uh, I was Susan first and identity was not a big deal. And we had a lot of Africans, West Indians, North Africans. We had everything under the sun. So uh the, the head of school always used to say, these children are united by their differences. Um, and that was what I wanted for her. I didn't, again, want the sort of racial clutter. Uh, it mm -hmm. was also, I might add, a completely different time. <laughs> she was five <laughs> years old when Barack Obama was elected president. And she said, uh, that means my daddy could be president. So even though we weren't harping on uh, race, she was completely getting the connection there. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And uh, as an eight-year-old, we had a convert when she was eight, we had a conversation one day because they were discussing race in school. And I said, so how do you think of yourself? And she said, I'm black with no hesitation and with great pride. So I thought, okay, my experiment worked. I didn't have to beat her up with, <laughs> as you know, we're black. Um, but uh, clearly the message has gotten through and and she has a very strong sense of herself and her cultures. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so that's, I mean, other people may not agree with that way of doing it. Um, and it wasn't sidestepping race questions, but it was more, let's focus on humanity and on culture. So I just want to ask you, the tricky part of that yeah. is that um, your family is rich with, with history of, of people immigrating to the United States, mm -hmm. but there are lots of people who three, four, well, three generations of being here, being, um, uh, uh, and not, and the culture, their culture being American black culture. And as you and I both know, the, there is a concept of claiming all these different cultures suggests that you're something other than black, yep. something other than black American. And, and, and how do you sort of, um, make sure that you're not saying you're not no or, so, ordinary yeah. black, you're, <laughs> it's like all these well, different. Well, a good place to start is never using those words. No, but it's also, you know, yes, of course, there are people whose families have been here, you know, for hundreds of years as African-Americans. If you mm -hmm. scratch the surface with a lot of African-Americans, there is a Caribbean connection. So, mm -hmm. again, in the same way that my parents said, hey, these are your heritages. But guess what? This doesn't remove you from <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the wonderful family of African-Americans. It makes you another part of it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I really feel I conveyed that to her because I certainly... Uh, made clear how proud I was to be an American, to be an African American. As long as it's you're grounded in the history, just circling back. Yes, exactly. look beyond it, but you've yeah. got to, in order to look beyond it, you've got to uh, ingrain in your children the knowledge of who they are, who their family is, yes. and, 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 and it enables you to sort of look more broadly at, at how everybody fits in and, and, and not exactly. worry about. Exactly. Exactly. And then of course, Carol, you and I've discussed this all the time. Who are you associating with? 
if outside of our family we were not associating with any black people, um, we'd have a real problem on our hands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this is true. Yeah, parents so, heed that as well. <laughs> values are caught, not taught. And so, you know, I think when you see your parents very comfortable around a range of people um, right. uh, who right. are from a range of backgrounds and hues, just expose, 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 and tell people stories. And also as they're growing up, I mean, again, what a, what a golden age to, to be a child, a black child. We had Ken Chenault at American Express. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had Dick Parsons. Yeah. You know, uh, we had uh, Ursula Burns. You know, there were all these wonderful people that we could, I could point to on the cover of a magazine saying this person runs this, this person runs that. Right. Um, right. And uh, so because people start to internalize shame when, especially black kids of privilege who, you know, maybe they're the only in their school and <laughs> their parents are the only, you know, black professionals anyone there has ever met. And, and so the, the image they have is, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm a zebra and everybody who has nice things doesn't look like me. Forget nice things. Accomplishment doesn't look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to, consistently point out excellence and accomplishment all around you and and organically that's where the pride and the empowerment come from in my mm-hmm. view more than oh, lecturing absolutely. about you have to be proud of being african-american no show me show me why i'm proud <laughs> right no that's exactly that's exactly right susan I have to wrap it up here. Yes. I have to thank you so much because I not only have your stories been fascinating as I knew they would be, but I feel as if parents can learn a lot from this. I mean, there's a lot of really rich uh, takeaways. So this, that's really great. So there's <laughs> one more thing before we go, and that is you have to play the GCP bonus round. Three yes. questions. Yes. So here we go. Your favorite poem? Um, uh, my favorite poem is... Um, uh, the Emily Dickinson hope is like that thing with feathers. Uh, yep. and then there's another one of hers where she says, we never know how tall we are, uh, till we are called to rise. And then if we are true to form, our natures touch the skies. Oh, so that's great. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Your favorite two children's books, and they could be ones you grew up with or one that you read to Bristol. Um, so, uh, my, one of my favorite, uh, books, uh, that I read to her, uh, was, uh, runaway bunny. And, uh, uh it was about how you're never going to shake me basically. <laughs> <laughs> Good to get that in there early. So they know, right. Just, <laughs> just don't think you can escape mommy, her love, her gaze, her fierce protectiveness, um, any of that. Um, and then, uh, for my own, um, reading as a child, there was this collection of French books by the Comtesse de Ségur, and it was all about um, miserable little girls in fabulous chateaus, and <laughs> I loved them. And 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 that will explain a lot of you know people will go, oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> she may say she's one of us, but we're not sure we want her. She's crazy. <laughs> And finally, your favorite film, TV, theater, parent? Oh, that's a good question. I'd probably have to say Atticus Finch. Oh, by the way, I think is a he was a racist. Let's be clear. She didn't just make him 
a racist in her first novel. He he is a racist, <laughs> but um, his dignity and the way he he treated his children like intelligent beings and didn't mollycoddle them, um, and the fact that he was he reminds me of my father in his emotional remoteness. Um, but then at the same time, his, his respect for the intellect of his kids and his demanding of them that they rise to the level of responsibility and being citizens. So, wow. That uh, is a great answer. <laughs> well done. Susan. Well, my pack was hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> Well, Susan, thank you again so much for being with us today. And I hope everybody listening enjoyed this conversation, certainly as much as I did. <laughs> and then, and that you'll come back for more. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. Please send comments and questions on any of our platforms, Facebook, Instagram, at Ground Control Parenting. Really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thank you so much for listening.